Part two, chapter eleven of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, chapter eleven. A communication from Lieutenant Hobson. Such was the situation. To use Sergeant Long's expression, the island had cast anchor and was as stationary as when the isthmus connected it with the mainland. But six hundred miles now separated it from inhabited countries, six hundred miles which would have to be traversed in sledges across the solidified surface of the sea, amongst the icebergs which the cold would build up in the bitterest months of the Arctic winter. It would be a fearful undertaking, but hesitation was impossible. The winter for which Lieutenant Hobson had so ardently longed had come at last, and arrested the fatal march of the island to the north. It would throw a bridge six hundred miles long from their desolate home to the continents on the south, and the new chances of safety must not be neglected. Every effort must be made to restore the colonists, so long lost in the hyperborean regions, to their friends. As Hobson explained to his companions, it would be madness to linger till the spring should again thaw the ice, which would be to abandon themselves once more to the capricious bearing currents. They must wait until the sea was quite firmly frozen over, which at the moment would be in another three or four weeks. Meanwhile, the lieutenant proposed making frequent excursions on the ice field and circling the island in order to ascertain its thickness. Its suitability for the passage of sledges, and the best route to take across it so as to reach the shores of Asia or America. Of course, observed Hobson to Mrs. Barnett and Sergeant Long, we would all rather make for Russian America than Asia, if a choice is open to us. Kalumaha will be very useful to us, said Mrs. Barnett, for as a native she will be thoroughly acquainted with the whole of Alaska. Yes, indeed. Replied Hobson, her arrival was most fortunate for us. Thanks to her, we shall be easily able to get to the settlement of Fort Michael on Norton Sound, perhaps even to New Archangel, a good deal further south, where we can pass the rest of the winter. Poor Fort Hope! exclaimed Mrs. Barnett. It goes to my heart to think of abandoning it on this island. It has been built at the cost of so much trouble and fatigue. Everything about it has been so admirably arranged by you, Lieutenant. I feel as if my heart would break when we leave it finally. You will not suffer more than I shall, madam, replied Hobson, and perhaps not so much. It is the chief work of my life. I have devoted all my powers to the foundation of Fort Hope, so unfortunately named, and I shall never cease to regret having to leave it. And what will the company say which confided this task to me? For after all, I am but its humble agent. It will say, cried Mrs. Barnett with enthusiasm, it will say that you have done your duty, that you are not responsible for the caprices of nature, which is ever more powerful than man. It will understand that you could not foresee what has happened, for it was beyond the penetration of the most far-sighted man. And it will know that it owes the preservation of the whole party to your prudence and moral courage. Thank you, madam, replied the lieutenant, pressing Mrs. Barnett's hand. Thank you for your warm-hearted words. 
but I have had some experience of men, and I know that success is always admired, and failure condemned. But the will of heaven be done. Sergeant Long, anxious to turn the lieutenant from his melancholy thoughts, now began to talk about the preparations for the approaching departure, and asked if it was not time to tell his comrades the truth. Let us wait a little longer, replied Hobson. We have saved the poor fellows much anxiety and worry already. Let us keep silent until the day is fixed for the start, and then we will reveal the whole truth. This point being decided, the ordinary occupations of the factory went on for a few weeks longer. How different was the situation of the colonists a year ago, when they were all looking forward to the future in happy unconsciousness. A year ago the first symptoms of the cold season were appearing, even as they are now. The young ice was gradually forming along the coast. The lagoon, its waters being quieter than those of the sea, was the first to freeze over. The temperature remained about one or two degrees above freezing point in the day, and fell to three or four degrees below in the night. Hobson again made his men assume their winter garments, the linen vests and furs before described. The condensers were again set up inside the house. The air vessel and air pumps were cleaned, the traps were set around the palisades on different parts of Cape Bathurst, and Marbra and Sabine got plenty of game, and finally the last touches were given to the inner rooms of the principal house. Although Fort Hope was now about two degrees further north than at the same time the year before, there was no sensible difference in the state of the temperature. The fact is, the distance between the seventieth and seventy-second parallels is not great enough to affect the mean height of the thermometer. On the contrary, it really seemed to be less cold than at the beginning of the winter before. Perhaps, however, that was because the colonists were now, to a certain extent, acclimatized. Certainly the winter did not set in so abruptly as last time. The weather was very damp, and the atmosphere was always charged with vapour, which now fell as rain, now as snow. In Lieutenant Hobson's opinion, at least, it was not nearly cold enough. The sea froze all round the island, it is true, but not in a regular or continuous sheet of ice. Large, blackish patches, here and there, showed that the icicles were not thoroughly cemented together. Loud resonant noises were constantly heard, produced by the breaking of the ice-field, when the rain melted the imperfectly welded edges of the blocks composing it. There was no rapid accumulation of lump upon lump, such as is generally seen in intense cold. Icebergs and hummocks were few and scattered, and no ice-wall as yet shut in the horizon. This season would have been just the thing for the explorers of the Northwest Passage, or the seekers of the North Pole, repeated Sergeant Long again and again. But it is most unfavorable for us, and very much against our ever getting back to our own land. This went on throughout October, and Hobson announced that the mean temperature was no lower than 32 degrees Fahrenheit, and it is well known that several days of cold, seven degrees or eight degrees below zero, are required for the sea to freeze hard. Had proof been needed that the ice-field was impassable, a fact noticed by Mrs. Barnett and Hobson would have sufficed. The animals imprisoned on the island, 
the furred animals, reindeers, wolves, etc., would have left the island had it been possible to cross the sea. But they continued to gather in large numbers round the factory, and to seek the vicinity of man. The wolves came, actually within musket range of the encant, to devour the martens and polar hares, which were their only food. The famished reindeer, having neither moss nor herbs on which to browse, roved about Cape Bathurst in herds. A solitary bear, no doubt the one to which Mrs. Barnett and Kalumaha felt they owed a debt of gratitude, often passed to and fro amongst the trees of the woods, on the banks of the lagoon, and in the presence of all these animals, especially of the ruminants, which require an exclusively vegetable diet, proved that flight was impossible. We have said that the thermometer remained at freezing point, and Hobson found on consulting his journal that at the same time the year before it had already marked twenty degrees Fahrenheit below zero, proving how unequally cold is distributed in the capricious polar regions. The colonists, therefore, did not suffer much, and were not confined to the house at all. It was, however, very damp indeed. Rain mixed with snow fell constantly, and the falling of the barometer proved that the atmosphere was charged with vapour. Throughout October, the lieutenant and Long made many excursions to ascertain the state of the ice-field in the offing. One day they went to Cape Michael, another to the edge of the former Walrus's Bay, anxious to see if it would be possible to cross to the continent of America or Asia, or if the start would have to be put off. But the surface of the ice-field was covered with puddles of water, and in some parts riddled with holes, which would certainly have been impassable for sledges. It seemed as if it would be scarcely safe for a single traveller to venture across the half-liquid, half-solid masses. It was easy to see that the cold had been neither severe nor equally maintained, for the ice consisted of an accumulation of sharp points, crystals, prisms, polyhedrons, and figures of every variety, like an aggregation of stalactites. It was more like a glacier than a field, and even if it had been practicable, walking on it would have been very tiring. Hobson and Long managed with great difficulty to scramble over a mile or two towards the south, but at the expense of a vast amount of time, so that they were compelled to admit that they must wait some time yet, and they returned to Fort Hope, disappointed and disheartened. The first day of November came, and the temperature fell a little, but only a very few degrees, which was not nearly enough. Victoria Island was wrapped in damp fogs, and the lamps had to be lit during the day. It was necessary, however, to economize the oil as much as possible, as the supply was running short. No fresh stores had been brought by Captain Creventy's promised convoy, and there were no more walruses to be hunted. Should the dark winter be prolonged, the colonists would be compelled to have recourse to the fat of animals, perhaps even to the resin of the furs, to get a little light. The days were already very short, and the pale disk of the sun, yielding no warmth, and deprived of all its brightness, only appeared above the horizon for a few hours at a time. Yes, winter had come, with its mists, its rain, and its snow, but without the long-desired cold. 
on the 11th November. Something of a fete was held at Fort Hope. Mrs. Joliffe served up a few extras at dinner, for it was the anniversary of the birth of little Michael McNabb. He was now a year old, and was the delight of everybody. He had large blue eyes and fair curly hair like his father, the head carpenter, who was very proud of the resemblance. At dessert the baby was solemnly weighed. It was worth something to see him struggling in the scales, and to hear his astonished cries. He actually weighed thirty-four pounds. The announcement of this wonderful weight was greeted with loud cheers, and Mrs. McNabb was congratulated by everybody on her fine boy. Why Corporal Joliffe felt that he ought to share the compliments, it is difficult to imagine, unless it was as a kind of foster-father or nurse to the baby. He had carried the child about, dandled and rocked him so often, that he felt he had something to do with his specific weight. The next day, November 12th, the sun did not appear above the horizon. The long polar night was beginning nine days sooner than it had done the year before in consequence of the difference in latitude of Victoria Island then and now. The disappearance of the sun did not, however, produce any change in the state of the atmosphere. The temperature was as changeable as ever. The thermometer fell one day and rose the next. Rain and snow succeeded each other. The wind was soft and did not settle in any quarter, but often veered round to every point of the compass in the course of a single day. The constant damp was very unhealthy, and likely to lead to scorbutic affections amongst the colonists. But fortunately, although the lime-juice and lime-lozenges were running short, and had no fresh stock to be obtained, the scurvy grass and sorrel had yielded a very good crop, and, by the advice of Lieutenant Hobson, a portion of them was eaten daily. Every effort must, however, be made to get away from Fort Hope. Under the circumstances, three months would scarcely be long enough for them all to get to the nearest continent. It was impossible to risk being overtaken by the thaw on the ice-field, and therefore, if they started at all, it must be at the end of November. The journey would have been difficult enough, even if the ice had been rendered solid everywhere by a severe winter, and in this uncertain weather it was a most serious matter. On the 13th November, Hobson, Mrs. Barnett, and the sergeant met to decide on the day of departure. The sergeant was of opinion that they ought to leave the island as soon as possible. For, he said, we must make allowances for all the possible delays during a march of six hundred miles. We ought to reach the continent before March, or we may be surprised by the thaw, and then we shall be in a worse predicament than we are on our island." "'But,' said Mrs. Barnett, "'is the sea firm enough for us to cross it?' "'I think it is,' said Long, "'and the ice gets thicker every day. "'The barometer, too, is gradually rising, "'and by the time our preparations are completed, "'which will be in about another week, I think, "'I hope that the really cold weather will have set in.' "'The winter has begun very badly,' said Hobson. "'In fact, everything seems to combine against us.' Strange seasons have often been experienced on these seas. I have heard of whalers being able to navigate in places where, even in the summer, at another time, they would not have had an inch of water beneath their keels. In my opinion, there is not a day to be lost, 
and I cannot sufficiently regret that the ordinary temperature of these regions does not assist us. It will later, said Mrs. Barnett, and we must be ready to take advantage of every chance in our favour. When do you propose starting, Lieutenant? At the end of November at the latest, replied Hobson. But if in a week hence our preparations are finished and the route appears practicable, we will start then. Very well, said Long. We will get ready without losing an instant. Then, said Mrs. Barnett, you will now tell our companions of the situation in which they are placed? Yes, madam. The moment to speak and the time for action have alike arrived. And when do you propose enlightening them? At once, Sergeant Long, he added, turning to his subordinate, who at once drew himself up in a military attitude. Call all your men together in the large room to receive a communication. Sergeant Long touched his cap, and turning on his heels, left the room without a word. For some minutes Mrs. Barnett and Hobson were left alone, but neither of them spoke. The sergeant quickly returned, and told Hobson that his orders were executed. The lieutenant and the lady at once went into the large room. All the members of the colony, men and women, were assembled in the dimly lighted room. Hobson came forward, and standing in the centre of the group, said very gravely, My friends, until today I have felt it my duty, in order to spare you useless anxiety, to conceal from you the situation of our fort. An earthquake separated us from the continent. Cape Bathurst has broken away from the mainland. Our peninsula is but an island of ice. A wandering island. At this moment, Marbra stepped forward and said quietly, We knew it, sir. End of chapter 11